The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.pray. Lord, um, we come this morning with various burdens on our heart, Lord, um, various trials that we are walking through, God. Lord, pray that this morning you would remind us of your grace in the midst of those things, Lord. Remind us of the great truths of the gospel, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Remind us of the glory of your power, that you are over these trials. Comfort our souls. Encourage us towards bold faith this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a question. What storm are you going through in life right now? If I were to sit down with you and I would say, how can I pray for you? And you were completely honest. What would you say? What, what storm are you going through in your life? Maybe you're going through the storm of a rocky marriage. Or there is a child that is pushing you to your limit. Or your elderly mother and father are in need of constant emotional and physical care. Maybe the storm you're going through is that the doctor has mentioned the C word. Or a loved one has died too young or your body is falling apart. What storm are you going through right now? Maybe your parents don't understand you, kids. Maybe you feel like your parents don't love one another or they don't love you. What storm, what storm are you going through right now? I'm guessing as I ask that question of you, many of you don't need any examples. It just jumps out to you. I know the storm I'm going through right now in my life. Others of you say, do I have to pick just one? I mean, I got a couple, I got quite a few storms I could list out there, and yet others of you, you eternal optimists, are like, yeah, the life's pretty good, right? There's, there's not really any storms, but we all know that storms come in life. Sometimes they're more severe than others, sometimes they are longer than others, but all of us go through storms in this life. In Acts chapter 27, which we'll be studying today, the Apostle Paul is going to go through a storm, both a literal storm and a figurative storm. And as we read through his storm story, my hope is that you and I would be comforted to know that our God is in your storm. If you would please open up to Acts chapter 27, it is page 936 in the Red Bible and page 1215 in the Children's Bible. Now, Acts 27 is one of the most thrilling chapters in the whole Bible. It could be turned into a major motion picture, as you will see. It is, it is so startling and exciting. Um, it rivals all those other storm uh, movies like, you know, the, the Perfect Storm and The Finest Hour. Um, it is a, a dramatic chapter. It is a, a wonderful chapter. I wish someone would turn to a movie. I would pay good money to go see it. But just to catch us up to speed, if you remember, the Apostle Paul has been under trial for two years. Uh, he has been deemed innocent by the Romans time and time again, but they don't want to let him go because the Jews hate Paul. 
And so uh, if they release Paul, then they're going to be out of favor with the Jews. But if they keep Paul, then they're going to be negligent of justice. And so they don't know what to do, so they just continue to detain him. Well, Paul kind of reads the, the writing on the wall. He knows he won't get a fair trial. And so as a Roman citizen, he invokes his right to appeal to Caesar. That means he wants to go to Rome, to Caesar's court, to the great uh, high court of the land, and to have his case tried there in Rome. And so today we're going to read about Paul's journey towards Rome. And as we read about his storm story, I think you'll see that it relates very closely to your own storm story. Now, we're going to actually have five different uh, uh, acts of this story. And so there will be five main points. And so you get two extra points today, no extra charge. Um, I know some of you probably thought, I, I thought Dan could only count to three. Well, I do have a hand. So we're going to have five main points this morning. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover, so we don't have a whole lot of illustrations. Um, but what I think is as we walk through Paul's storm story, you will see how it mirrors your own storm story or how it should mirror your storm story. And so the first act of this great epic story is friendship for the storm. Let's look at verses one through three together. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramatium, that's where it was made, which was about to set sail to the port along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now, we'll pull up the map in a little bit to kind of show you geographically the travels that Paul goes through. But the first thing I want us to notice here is that Paul is accompanied on his journey by several different people. One of the people is this man, Aristarchus. Uh, we're first introduced to Aristarchus back in Ephesians chapter 20, I believe it is, when there are the riots in Ephesus, and Aristarchus is brought into the auditorium, and insults are hurled at him. Uh, we learn in that chapter and in the following chapter that Aristarchus had been a traveling companion of Paul. Uh, later, when we read, uh, when, when we look at the book of Colossians, which is written from Rome, uh, we read that Paul says to his audience, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And so what we know is that Aristarchus is not only going to start this journey with Paul to Rome, but that he will finish this journey with Paul to Rome. And so Aristarchus is with Paul. Also with Paul is Luke. Uh, Luke is the writer of, of this uh, letter of Acts. And you see in this language of the passage that we just read, he uses the word we a lot. And so he says, we put to sea, and we put in at Sidon. And so Luke travels with Paul as well. And we know that he also makes it all the way to Rome with Paul. And so there's Aristarchus, there's Luke. We also see Paul has friends at Sidon. Most likely, this is the church at Sidon. And so Paul goes to them so that they can care for his needs. You see, in those times, the prisoners didn't have a meal program. They were extremely dependent on friends and family to bring them food and to care for their basic needs. And so Paul goes to his friends at Sidon to care for him. And then finally, we see this new character, this centurion, Julius. Uh, Julius is a Roman guard in charge of escorting Paul to Rome from Caesarea. My assumption is that Julius is probably not a Christian. I don't know that for sure. Um, but given that he's a Roman centurion, he probably is not. But what is so fascinating here is that he is so kind and so trusting to Paul. 
In verse 3, it says, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. The trust that Paul had accumulated throughout his trial is really staggering because if Paul escapes uh, this Roman guard, this Roman guard could potentially be put to death. And so he's entrusting his life to Paul. And he's saying, I trust you to go to your friends and to be cared for. And so that's Julius. And so here are, here are Paul's traveling companions. And I think it's so important for us to observe that Paul has these companions, this, this fellowship, these spiritual friends, because this is something that all of us need, especially friends inside the church. Paul determined it to be necessary for mutual support and care to be connected with other people within the church. I, I met with a friend recently who's going through the worst storm of his life. Uh, I've never seen him so off-kiltered before. And I, and I sat down and I met with him. He's a Christian. He goes to another church. Um, he's been at that church for several years. And I, and I sat there with him and I cried with him. And I asked him, I said, I said, who in your church can walk with you through this storm in your life? And his basic answer was, I got nobody. There, there's no one at my church that I'm close enough with to, to walk through this storm in life with. And to be honest, I don't think his answer is all that uncommon. If you look at the back of our bulletin, you'll see there are three major emphasis. And the third one is spiritual intimacy. And it says our desire is to help people to develop deep community within the church by connecting them to a small group, youth group, triad, or other relational ministry. Now, I know you have probably heard me preach this time and time again, and some of you are still thinking, this is not for me. I'm introverted. Um, I'm doing fine on my own. I really don't need other people to speak into my life. If you're honest, maybe you'd say, I don't get along well with other people. Friends, God has created you and me for spiritual intimacy with one another. And can I tell you a secret? Satan loves it when you're rebelliously independent. He loves it when you are divided from Christ's church, when you want to go things your own way. Not only does Paul need spiritual intimacy, but so does God himself. God is a Trinitarian God, and he is in spiritual intimacy within himself between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if we stand here today and we say, we need no spiritual intimacy, we need no other companions or, or Christian friends, what we are saying is that we are a better Christian than the Apostle Paul, than Luke, than Aristarchus, and even better than the Trinitarian God himself. I cannot overemphasize how important it is for us to have spiritual intimacy, to have Christian friendship. It has been such a, 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 a revealing thing of how important it is that we actually have on our job applications here at Jake's World Church that they must be connected to a small group of some sort because spiritual intimacy is so extremely important. So you cannot work here at Jake's World Church. You cannot be an elder here at Jake's World Church unless you are engaged in spiritual intimacy. And spiritual intimacy is important for so, so many reasons. But the one we see here today is so that we can help carry one another through the storms of life. 
Now you may be wondering, okay, how do, I, how do I get connected? That sounds great, but how do I do this? In a couple of weeks, you'll see we will have lots of sign-ups for community groups, for triads. We have it for Awana. We'll have it for youth group. We want to provide avenues for you to connect with other believers. Even if you are connected outside with, with believers from other churches, that's great. But people who will walk with you through the storms. And so that will be coming in the next weeks. And so please pray and please take courage to connect, to be a part of the body of Christ. And so Paul had friendship for the storm. And then there is the fury of the storm. So far, Paul and his companions, we can look at this map up here. Oh, there we are. That's right. That screen's out. So far, Paul has gone from Caesarea up to Sidon, okay? And that's where we pick up the passage, and we'll come back to this map in a little bit. Now, as we read through today's story, I just want to let you know it's going to be a bit choppy because I want to walk you step by step through the map, but also because there's a lot of nautical terms in there, which I didn't know, um, and so I'm assuming some of you don't know as well, and so I just want to explain those so that we can understand the passage. So verse 4 says, In putting out to sea, from there we sailed up under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. So it says that they sailed along the lee. What the lee is, is it's the opposite side of the island from when the, where the wind is coming. And so the wind is coming this direction. And so they decide instead of taking the shortest route to go around Cyprus so that Cyprus can block some of the wind and make their travel easier. We'll also read about this later in the chapter. But evidently the seas are getting rough. And so they have to go a different direction, okay? All right, verse 6. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So let's look back up to the map. So they're here at Myra. They exchange to another ship so that they can go to Rome, which is over this direction. They sail towards Rome, uh, uh, past Sinaitis, and it takes them longer than expected to get there. It takes them several days when in adequate weather, it should take about a day. And so they, they treacherously go to Sinaitis. Uh, the quickest route to Rome would be to go this direction. But again, they want to be protected from the wind. So they come down along Crete. Uh, they sail past Crete and they come to Fair Havens. Okay? Verse 9. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Okay, so the feast that Paul is referring to here is the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur. And evidently there was the basic understanding that after the Day of Atonement, you don't travel on the Mediterranean Sea because it is dangerous, okay? I learned this when I come up here with Mother's Day and planting gardens. People say, don't plant your garden before Mother's Day because there's a good chance that your plants will get frostbitten and then they'll die, right? So in the same way they'd say, you know, after the Day of Atonement, don't travel on the Mediterranean Seas. It is dangerous and you take your life into your own hands. Verse 11. But the centurion, Julius, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest 
and northwest and spend the winter there. And so you can see here on the map, they're here at Fairhaven. Evidently, it's not a good place to harbor for the winter. So they decide to go to Phoenix for the winter. They vote and all say, yep, let's go to Phoenix for the winter. Should we vote? Who all wants to go to Phoenix for the winter? I do, right? So they're pretty smart people in some ways. But Paul says, no, it's too dangerous to do it, right? And so this, this little journey, this three-hour tour, for those of you who are old enough, uh, it's supposed to just take a couple hours to get to Phoenix. Um, but as they start to head, uh, again, the winds are coming against them, and so they have to go south a little bit. Verse 13 says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor, which is to slow them down, not to stop them, and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. Now the Greek word for northeaster, that the New Testament is written in Greek, and the Greek word for northeaster is the word typhonic, which is the word that we get typhoon from. Um, if you don't know what a typhoon is, basically it's a hurricane just in a different part of the world. And so they are facing hurricane force winds in this time, okay? Verse 15, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kada. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boats. The ship's boats would be the dinghy or the lifeboat, and it was probably filled with water at this time, so it was a struggle to secure those boats. Verse 17, after hosting it up, they used supports to undergird the ships. And so there would be these big straps that they put underneath the bow of the ship to try to keep the ship together and from breaking apart. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, the lower, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Okay, so this lowered the gear. We're not exactly sure what it means. It could have been um, their anchors or their sails or whatever it might have been, but they were in a ferocious storm, and they were taking all means necessary to try to survive it. Now, as we look at this storm, as we look at the fury of this storm, uh, we may ask this question. Um, why, why this storm? Why did God put this storm in Paul's life? As scary as it might have been, why did Paul endure this furious storm? Was there something in his life? Was, was he sinning and God was rebuking him? Or was, was Paul running from God? And so God brought this storm. I mean, he did that to Jonah. Was he doing that to Paul? And I just think it's so important for us to see here that, that Paul was suffering the storm, not because he was disobedient to God's call, but because he was obedient to God's call. God had called him to go to Jerusalem to proclaim the gospel and then to go to Rome and continue proclaiming the gospel. And Paul was being obedient to the commission that God had given him. And because of his obedience, he was enduring the storm. You see, throughout Scripture, we see that storms come to people. And sometimes there's a reason. Sometimes God is disciplining his children, trying to woo them back to himself, trying to bring them back in accord with his will. Jonah is an example, but really you can look at Israel, the northern kingdom, or Judah, the southern kingdom, and they go through a significant storm. God brings in the Assyrians and the Babylonians to, to conquer them, to exile them, and God is doing it to discipline them and to woo them back to himself. And yet that's not always the case. We can't make a one-to-one -one correlation. We can't say, oh, you're suffering. There must be sin in your life, right? That's what Job's friends did. And how did they turn out? Not so good, right? Not so right. There's not always a one-to-one -one correlation. But when we go through storms in our life, we should at least humbly come before God and ask him and say, Lord, 
Is there something in my life that you're trying to purge from me because you love me so much that you want me closer to you? But in Paul's case, what we see is that that wasn't the case. He was following God's will. And many times when we follow God's will for our lives, there will still be storms. You know, there, in today's world, there's this thing that people say karma, right? Like if you get hit by a, by a bat or by a ball, they'll say, oh, that's karma, right? Or we'll say people are superstitious. Maybe you consider yourself superstitious. It was interesting, I was talking to Pastor Jonathan a couple months ago, and he said, you know, if I was superstitious, I probably wouldn't move to Green Bay because there have been so many barriers, so many things that have come up to kind of prevent our move to Green Bay. But I'm convinced that it wasn't because Jonathan was walking out of line with God's will, but in line with God's will that those barriers came. And Satan was attacking him and his family, didn't want him to come because he knew the kingdom would expand through it. And so what we see is that furious storms will come to our life. And we need to ask the question, Lord, why is this here? Is it simply a result of living in the fallen world? Or is there something that I am not doing? Am I, am I running away from you and you are drawing, back to, drawing me back to yourself? And so we read of the friendship for the storm, the fury of the storm, and now naturally fear during the storm. Verse 17. After hosting the lifeboat up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since, uh, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Perhaps the ship was taking on water that wouldn't be so uncommon. Or maybe the crew just panicked and they started throwing cargo overboard. All of a sudden, money wasn't all that important. They were afraid of something more than losing a profit. They were afraid of losing their lives. In verse 19, they throw the ship's tackle overboard. Some have proposed that this is uh, a support for the main sail, uh, whatever it was, it must have been heavy. They threw it over to try to lighten their load and save their lives. And then when we get to verse 20, we read that they couldn't even see the sun or the stars for many days. Now, they didn't have electricity. They couldn't go inside and turn on the lights. And so it was a dark atmosphere that they were in. But for sailors, it was of even more importance. You see, the sun and the stars and the moon was their GPS. It was their guidance system. And so they had no idea where they were going. They were completely lost. They had no idea where they were. And then in verse 20, we read those sinister words. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The sailors had tried their very best to rage against the storm. And finally, they realized that their best was not good enough. That they were powerless against this storm. You know, I'm, I'm guessing the word fear is not a strong enough word to describe what these sailors are feeling. They are not only afraid, but they are hopeless and they are in utter despair. It says they had abandoned all hope of being saved. I'm curious as you have thought about that storm in your own life, if you can relate to these sailors 
If you can say the storm has been for so long and it has been so bad that I have absolutely no hope that it will get any better. Maybe you can relate with these guys. Maybe in the midst of your storm, you have abandoned all hope that God is with you in the storm. That you've abandoned hope that God has power over that storm. Maybe you've abandoned all hope that God can produce from that storm a glorious rainbow. Maybe you're here and the storm of your life is of your own doing. Maybe you are caught in a secret addiction or a secret sin. Or, or maybe there's just one big sin you did in the past that you just can't seem to get over and you're afraid of God's judgment. And maybe you have given all hope that God would save someone as rotten as you. But no matter how scared you are, how hopeless you feel in the midst of the storm, God is calling you to faith. God is calling you to believe in his power, to believe in his plan, even in the midst of the raging storm. And so there is fear in the midst of the storm, through all these sailors, 275 of them. But then there is the Apostle Paul. And we see an example of faith in the midst of the raging storm. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete. And they cured this injury and lost. Okay, so at first this may sound like Paul is saying, nah, nah, I told you so. Maybe there's a part of that. Paul's a sinner just like us. But what Paul is probably doing is he's building his credentials for what he's about to say next. He's going to say, you know what? Back then, I know I'm just a prisoner. I was right then. I'm about to tell you something. And so listen to me because I'm right now as well. And what he's about to tell them is fairly ridiculous, okay? So look with me in verse 22. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. In the midst of this storm, when the crew has abandoned all hope of salvation, Paul stands tall by faith and proclaims and clings to the promises of God. There are two promises in particular that Paul lists out here. The first promise is a promise from the angel that was reiterated from a previous promise. I don't know if you remember earlier in Acts chapter 23 after Paul is beaten within an inch of his life and then he's being held by the Roman tribunal that the Lord comes and stands next to Paul and he says, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so the angel comes to reaffirm his promise to Paul. I know the storm looks bad. I know the storm is horrendous. But guess what? God is going to be faithful to his promise. He will bring you to Caesar to testify before him. And so that's the first promise. And then there's the second promise, which is, which is kind of an extenuation of the first promise. The angel promises Paul that no one upon the ship will lose their life. That although the ship would be destroyed, that all the men and women on board would be saved. 
And so by faith, Paul clings to the promises of God. He stands tall in the midst of the storm, and he tells the men who have abandoned all hope of salvation, take heart, because God promises that you will be delivered from this storm. This is more than Paul saying, hey guys, turn your frown upside down. He's saying you need to completely change your understanding of this situation. You need to understand that there is a God, a God of mine, a God to whom I belong that is with us in the midst of this storm. And he has promised us to save us from destruction. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. That's about 120 feet of depth below the boat. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, about 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchor, the, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's bow into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And so as Paul told them earlier, they must go, they must run aground, the boat will be destroyed, the ship will be destroyed, but all the people will be saved. And so as they approach the land, they drop these anchors to prepare for running aground. Some of the sailors there decide, you know what, we're going to sneak off. We're going to take this lifeboat and go away. But by God's grace, they're caught. And Paul says, hey, listen, soldiers, if these guys escape, these are the guys who know how to run the ship. If they escape, none of us will be saved. And so they cut the lines and they let the lifeboats go. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Why would it be that these men and women wouldn't eat for two weeks straight? Probably because they were in utter despair of the storm that was around them. Not only that, they're probably also seasick, just practically, right? It's probably a combination of the two. And then here Paul is, he says, hey guys, an angel appeared to me. <laughs> Can you imagine how they'd respond? I think they would laugh. Oh, an angel, good for you, Paul. Was a unicorn with him, you know? Then an angel appeared and the Lord to whom I belong said, we're gonna be safe, it's gonna be okay, have faith, take heart, eat food, it's gonna be okay. And so they eat food just before dawn, just before the sun rises to get their strength to go to land. Verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now I know some of the language here sounds like maybe Paul is serving the Lord's Supper or communion or whatever. That's not what's happening. He's, they're simply eating bread because that's what they have. And he's giving thanks to the Lord God. 
And what's so amazing about this situation as you look at this, it seems as if everybody is panicked. But then there's Paul, who's standing there peacefully, calmly, clinging to the promises of God, having a peace that surpasses all understanding. And he leads this ship to trust in the promise of God. Now, it's interesting because originally I was going to end right here (laughs) at this passage with them offshore, um, but I figured I wanted to keep my job, so let's keep going. Verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. And so these guys are all in, right? They throw away their anchors. They raise their sail. They head straight towards land. They are all in for this plan now. And then I love, I love verse 23. You know, as Paul describes his relationship with the Lord, Paul doesn't say that my God will save us, but rather the God to whom I belong. Other versions say the God whose I am. You see, we talk about Paul's peace in the midst of the storm and how it contrasts the sailors. And the reason why Paul can have peace in the midst of the storm is because he knows to who he belongs. He belongs to the Lord of the storm. He belongs to the God who is in the midst of the storm. And so having the peace of of possession, of knowing that he belongs to God, he can stand before them and says, my God who has been faithful every day of my life has made this promise that we will be saved. And so he can encourage them to take heart, to eat food, and to prepare them for their deliverance. Friends, if you trust in Christ, you are not only a Christian, but you are property of God. You belong to God. You are his beloved child. You are his cherished bride. And because you belong to God, we know that ultimately, he will deliver us. He may not deliver you from the storm that you are currently in, but he will deliver you from all storms one day when he makes good on his most glorious promises of all. And that's what brings us to the last section of this epic story. Verse 41. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow, which is the front of the ship, struck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Remember, if they escaped, the the guards could be killed. Verse 43, but the centurion, Julius, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. God promised that all 276 people on the boat would be saved. Even those who can't swim would be saved. I mean, this is a pretty amazing promise to deliver. Think about it. At any time, a guy could simply go overboard, right? And he could die. Or, or he could die of exhaustion trying to get, get water out of the boat or of starvation or, or, or if they're vomiting because of the seasick, what dehydration. They could die of a whole multitude of things. And yet God promises every single one of you, all 276 will be saved 
And they are just as God promises. Now to be clear, God does not promise all of us that our storms will go away. He does not promise us that, that, that there will be this deliverance from the storm that we're currently in. Certainly it could last the rest of our life. But God makes to his church a greater promise. He promises us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, these sailors were saved. Their life was rescued for a time, but they would die again. And for those who didn't trust in Christ, they would go to a greater storm, to the pains of hell for all eternity. But God gives us a greater promise. He says, if you trust in the Lord, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved, not in this life, but for all eternity, where there will be no more storms, there will no be, be no more pain, there will be no more suffering. You see, Jesus Christ went to the cross, and he took on the storm, the wrath of God for our sin. And he paid for it in full. And he sank to the bottom of the ocean. He died upon the cross, but he rose again on the third day to give us newness of life and the hope of heaven that these storms that we live in right now are only temporal. And they do not compare to the glory of heaven that is to come. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. He's talking about in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our storms, we do not lose heart for our light and momentary troubles. Light and momentary. Storms don't feel that way, do they? But Paul says this is light and momentary compared to the glory of heaven. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, that is the storms of this life, but what is unseen, the glory of heaven. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let me end with this. All people will go through storms in their life. Christians and non-Christians, they all go through storms. But God makes this great promise to his people. He says, your storms will not be in vain. That there will be purpose in the storm. That I will use it for your good and for all who love Christ. I will use it to conform you into the image of Jesus. And so we have this great hope. Not only that there will be a day when these storms will end, when we will be in heaven, but that every storm we go through, God is using it for a great purpose. I was reminded this week of the story of John Newton. He was born in 1725. He was raised by a woman who loved Jesus, but at the age of seven, his mother died. And so he went to go live with his father. His father was a prominent sailor. And so he took up the trade and he decided to go and, and be a sailor, but he was untrustworthy. He got fired from several jobs. He was sinning like crazy. And so he decided to flee to Africa. And he fleed to Africa for the purpose of this. He puts it here. He says, to sin his fill. That's why he went to Africa, to go and sin his fill. And so he went to Africa, and he lived just a devious lifestyle. While he was there, he was actually underneath a, a, the power of a, uh, of a slave trader. Um, and whenever he would leave town, the wife of that slave trader would abuse him. And so he decided to, to get out of town. So he goes to the shore, and he starts this fire trying to call ships to come and pick him up. And so a ship comes and picks him up. And they notice that he's pretty good with, with, on the seas, and so they, they make him a mate. And he's working there, but he loses that status. 
because he actually finds out where the rum supply is in the ship. He breaks it all out, gets a whole, the whole crew drunk. Um, he actually falls overboard and almost dies, but doesn't, gets rescued and comes back on board. And so they, revo- they revoke his status as a mate, whatever that means. And so there he is sailing towards his destination. And as they get closer, they come across this fantastic storm. And, and the boat is being overwhelmed. And he is told to go down into the lower recesses of the ship and to man the pumps. That is to, to pump out the water. And so he's down there and, and hope looks bleak and he is, he is crushed by what is going on. And for the first time in years, he cries out to God. He says, God, have mercy on me. And then he realized he didn't, need, he didn't deserve mercy. He thought about his Christian upbringing. And he knows that the wrath of God is for those who sinned against him. And he said, you know what? I'm just biding my time. I know that I'm going to hell and it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be good. And he lived a life of fear. But then he remembered the grace of God. That God came to die for sinners. And so on that day, for the first time, he knew peace from the storm of his soul. He trusted in Christ for his salvation. And he became one of the greatest preachers of grace. And of course, one of the great writers of one of the greatest hymns ever written, Amazing Grace. Friends, as you go back into the storms of life, they may be furious. But remember, remember, God is in the storm. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great promise that you are in the storm of our life. I confess that when, when the waves are rocky, I feel like you're nowhere close. And my faith often slacks. And so, Lord, pray for, for us who are going through significant storms in life, God. Pray that by your grace and by your power, you would give us faith to remember that you are with us, that you are God of this storm, that one day there will be deliverance from all the storms, but that in this storm, Lord, that you have promised us to use it for our good, for the good of those who love you, Lord. And so we cling to these promises in the midst of our storms. Lord, give us power to have a peace that surpasses all understanding, even when the ship of our life is falling apart, may we have peace knowing that we belong to you and that you are in the storm. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of the storm of your wrath poured out upon Christ for our sin. May we look at it and have peace knowing that we are now at peace with you because of Christ. Nourish our souls with this supper, Lord, and remind us that one day we will drink it new with you in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We had mentioned how important fellowship is. Christ had that with his heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit, and yet at the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His fellowship with the Father was broken so that you and I can have fellowship with the Father for all eternity. And so Christ, as he approaches his death, he takes bread, and after breaking it, gives it to them and says, take, eat, this is my body. 
In the same way, he took the cup and he said, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here today and you trust in Christ for your salvation, this is for you to nourish you in the storms of life. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, we are so thankful that you're here. God wants to be your refuge and your strength. And we would encourage you to come talk to us what that might look like. But please do not partake of these elements until that day that you can take it in good conscience and good faith that Christ is your Savior. We'll have several ushers set up throughout the sanctuary. When you're ready, please go and take the elements and bring them back to your seat. And we'll take together as one body the body of Jesus Christ.